Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. To remind you, we're here on Sundays on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on KWXX and on B93B97 and on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo the following Friday. And you may always hear these Island Conversations interviews as podcasts at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. On January 1st, 2019, a law went into effect in the state of Hawaii that we know as medical aid in dying. As you all know, we all will die. Sometimes a doctor may tell us that we have a disease or condition that is likely to end our life, cancer or something else. The medical aid in dying law, my interpretation of it, is that if a person receives such a diagnosis and the doctor expects their life to end in six months or less, this state is one of several that now allows the patient to select the time and place of their death by allowing them to get medication that will help them pass away peacefully, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I am joined by two medical professionals who are going to help explain medical aid in dying. Dr. Norm Goody is an emergency room doctor at Kohala Hospital. He got his medical degree at Baylor. Dr. Goody is an anesthesiologist and also focuses on addiction medicine, hospice and palliative care, and pain medicine, and he was formerly with Hospice of Kona. He was our guest not that long ago when we talked about some of the documents, along with Attorney Darrell Gleed, that anybody needs, including the powers of attorney for health care. Good morning, Aloha, Dr. Goody. Good morning, Sherry. Aloha. We're also joined by Dr. Charlotte Sharfin. She is an American Board of Emergency Medicine certified emergency room physician with nearly 20 years of clinical practice in the field of life and death. That's how she describes herself. She has a clinic in Kapa'au, North Kohala, called the Life and Death Wellness Center. Good morning, aloha, Dr. Sharfin. Good morning, aloha. So many people know that if they're given a terminal diagnosis with six months or less of expected life, they can take advantage of the services of hospice. And when medical aid in dying became a reality, I heard Brenda Ho, the director of the Hilo Hospice, which is now called Hawaii Care Choices, on the PBS show Island Insights, talking about the role of hospice with medical aid in dying. And I guess I interpret that as that medical aid in dying is sort of an extension of hospice care. So I thought I'd start there. So Dr. Goody, you used to be with hospice. Maybe you could explain what hospice is and and what they do as someone may get toward the end of their life. Sure. So anyone who has been diagnosed as having a six-month expected prognosis is eligible for hospice care. And what hospice does is take over the management and palliative care of the symptoms and treatment of the major complications and symptoms that may occur as a patient nears end of life. So that may be from heart disease, cancer, lung disease, but these are people who are expert in managing the symptoms associated with end of life. You know, when I said that I kind of see medical aid in dying as an extension of hospice, when Brenda Ho was explaining hospice, she talked about how hospice is intended to relieve pain and suffering. And I guess I see medical aid in dying as kind of the ultimate relief of pain and suffering. But maybe, Dr. Goody, you should tell us what is medical aid in dying? Well, first of all, palliative care is a subset of hospice care. 
that is specifically geared towards managing symptoms. Okay. And there are times when where symptoms cannot be adequately managed through medical care. Medical aid in dying is a means by which a patient can get a prescription for medication that will cause them to die. And some people choose, rather than allowing nature to take its course and potentially uh, experiencing inadequately controlled symptoms at end of life, they choose to end their own life at the time of their choosing uh, in order to avoid uh, uncontrolled symptoms at the end of life. Some people are very concerned about lack of being able to either manage the pain they're feeling or symptoms associated with the dying process. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. And Dr. Sharfin, you seem to specialize a lot in death, it yes. seems, based on what I know your practice is. And when Dr. Goody talked about, you know, the symptoms associated with the dying practice, you both have seen people pass away. You've seen people die. Why would somebody, do you think, choose to use medical aid in dying rather than essentially letting nature take its course? Sure. So if you look at Oregon, because they have had the law the longest and they've got the most data, usually the people that choose medical aid in dying, it's more of um, 90% of people say it's a loss of autonomy or a loss of not being able to enjoy their life anymore. Um, pain does come into it, but it's actually lower down because palliative care and hospice care, they are actually quite good at managing pain. But um, loss of autonomy, loss of bodily functions, um, being able to control those or reasons. Uh, a lot of people that tend to choose this are, um, for lack of a better word, control freaks, kind of like me. Uh, so <laughs> there are people that are used to being um, at the top of their game. So you think your engineers, your lawyers, if you look statistically at the people that may be interested in this law, because at the end of life, there is this perception that we, we do, we have a lack of control. And this gives a lot of people that some sense of control back. You know, I have said that medical aid in dying is really not necessary for the vast majority of people because hospice and palliative care is so good and really can manage symptoms so well. But as Dr. Sharfin says, it really becomes an issue of control over the time and place of the person's dying. The state of Hawaii is not the first state to have implemented this law, and I want to talk about what experiences you know about in other states. But first, there are some specific rules in Hawaii that may or may not be the same as other states. Can you give us a sense as to if someone was going to use this, how do you start? What do you have to do? What are the details? Sure. So first of all, you have to qualify under our state law. So you have to be an adult, 18 years old or older. You have to have a terminal illness, so six months or less to live, and that has to be documented by two physicians. Uh, the attending physician, the one that will write the prescription, and then what's called the consulting physician. In our state, which is different from, I think, every other state, is we also have to have a mental health evaluation that's mandatory. So there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through. We also have a longer waiting period for you to be able to access the law. Just so the listeners know, several weeks ago, Dr. Goody and Dr. Sharfin and I had the real pleasure to have a cup of coffee with Dr. David Grube, who is the National Medical Director for Compassion and Choices. And that's an organization that advocates for people to have many choices at the end of life. And he did talk about some of the experiences in other states, Oregon being the one he's most familiar with. Maybe you could give us a sense as to how well it's worked elsewhere. 
One of the things that's surprising to a lot of people is that the majority of people who actually choose aid in dying don't utilize the medications. Meaning they sign up for they it, but then they... They sign up for it, they get the prescription for the medications, and then they find they don't actually need them. So for many people, just having that option to know that they're in control turns out to be palliative in and of itself. Well, I think that goes back to what Dr. Sharfin said, that people want to have a sense that they're in control of their own destiny. And if anybody has seen anybody else die, it's clear it can be really challenging, difficult, painful, and so just knowing that one has control can be a good thing. Part of what I'm interested in, have there been problems? You know, one of the concerns here in the state was that relatives may, quote, force a person to enter into this so the person can be, well, can die faster, even though you only have six months, so it's not like they're going to die that much faster. But what's happened in other states? Has it been abused and misused? There is no documented case in any state. Let's see, Oregon started in 97. Then we've had nine other states come into this law, and there have been no documented cases of abuse or coercion when it comes to this law. And they're very strict on that and keeping, you know, keeping documentation on that. So, no, there's no... One of the limitations on this law is that the person who chooses to pursue aid in dying must be mentally fit. They must be competent. So um, people really can't be forcibly coerced or they can't, no one can administer the medications to them. They have to be able to administer the medications to themselves. So it in many ways limits quite a lot who is eligible for this. But I think in doing that, the people who've written these laws did it with the intent of preventing abuse of this Yeah, Um, absolutely. So you have to have two verbal requests. There has to be a written request. You have to have two witnesses. I mean, there's a lot that people have to go through if they're going to access this law. Well, and I understand it's not that easy. I have a friend, Steve Johnson, who did take advantage of the medical aid and dying law. And his wife, Kathy, has said often that if she wasn't able to help him with just filling out the forms, you know, just Mm -hmm. because it's sort of shocking to get that diagnosis that you're going to die within six months that there is a lot of paperwork a lot of phone calling and a huge benefit for them is they happen to be Kaiser patients and Kaiser has a navigator who helps with the process and they have a doctor Dr. Miller who is the primary doctor who sort of manages the program for Kaiser and I believe that other health insurers may not have a similar kind of arrangement so the patient has to do all of that themselves One of the issues right now is that aid in dying still hasn't become an accepted option for a lot of people in our society. And you shared with me that your friend who took advantage of it himself ran up against quite a lot of resistance, even from friends who were trying to talk him out of it. So, you know, a lot of people feel very strongly about this topic and will try and impose their own beliefs on other people. So for a patient, they're running up against resistance possibly from their own doctor from other people in that doctor's office, from friends, from family. So it takes quite a bit of commitment to go through with this. It's a new law. I think a lot of physicians and patients don't understand it yet. And that's why I'm glad we're having the conversation. Yeah. And that's really important. And what you said, Norm, Dr. Goody, is absolutely correct that in my friend Steve's case, there are some people whose strong religious beliefs were very important to them, and they felt he should have similar strong religious beliefs. And I think his, well, I know his attitude was, God gave me the capability to have this medication, to have this choice, and I'm appreciative that 
that was the way it was. The other thing that in the state that you mentioned that's different is the need to see a psychiatrist. And, you know, what you're going to see is a psychiatrist who you may have never seen before. I guess my question is, if I got a terminal diagnosis, I might feel kind of depressed. So if I go to a strange psychiatrist, how is he or she going to tell if I'm in good, competent mental shape in a way that is more effective than my own personal care physician who does know me? I mean, they may not be able to, but I think the intent of that is to make sure this person doesn't have a long-standing, untreated depressive disorder, as opposed to the normal kind of situational depression or sadness you might expect from having a terminal diagnosis. So that's really where Yeah, yeah it's competence was. more than anything. So right. I, I agree. The other states, they leave it up to the physician. So the physician gets to decide whether they're going to refer. So that's why our law is more stringent. Um, again, longer waiting time. Oregon's just changed their law from what Dr. Group had said to us. They only wait two days now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So things are changing, but this is a brand new law. So I'm just grateful that we actually have it because I think it opens up the conversation no matter which side you sit on. They've been trying to pass this law for a decade in this state. More, more. Yeah, more than, Close more than to 20 years, I think. Right. Yeah. So the law that was passed wasn't perfect but it was what they could get through with making compromises to the people who are opposed. So that's what we have to work around for the time being. I believe the State Department of Health did do a report on how many patients in the state had taken advantage of this law. Can you share with us what we know about that? Sure. They have only released information to the end of May. Okay. Okay. So we know that eight prescriptions have been written and two patients have actually used those prescriptions. For different providers were the ones that wrote those prescriptions. And from what I read in the report, they were all from Oahu, but that's only up to the end of May. So we know there are more because I am one of them. I have written a prescription one. Well, you know, my friend Steve lives here on the big island, but when you say the doctors were on Oahu, that's because Kaiser's Mm -hmm. Dr. Miller is Exactly. He's an Oahu doctor. Well, that brings us to the question of what is the medication one might take? Well, it's a compounded medication, first of all. So in the past, in other states, it was one medication that was a lot of money, over $2,500 usually. Actually, it was 4000 oh, if you're talking God. about second yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And now it's really not available. It's not available at all. Right. So we have to use compounded pharmacies. So you can't just walk into Long's and say, I have this prescription. That limits the law as well. So it's a combination of medications. So tell us, what is the medication here in the state of Hawaii that one would take? Sure. There are four medications that the compounded pharmacy would have to put together. That's digoxin. Which does what? It's a heart medication used in a lot of heart conditions, but in large doses, it would stop the heart. Diazepam, a lot of people know that as Valium, which is a sedative. Morphine, most people are familiar with. That's a narcotic. And then another medication called amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, but in large doses, it also affects the heart. And I understand that before one takes that medication, they would actually take anti-nausea medicine. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. So so there's a whole protocol. So there's uh, anti-nausea medicine that you take first. You wait 30 minutes. And then the protocol right now is then you would take the digoxin, 
wait 30 minutes, and then the rest of the medication. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking about medical aid in dying with Dr. Charlotte Sharfin and Dr. Norm Goody. Next week, my guest is scheduled to be Hawaii County Prosecuting Attorney Mitch Roth. Before we return to our conversation about medical aid in dying, a word from KTA Superstores, which just donated about $100,000 to local schools. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And now we're getting back to our conversation about medical aid in dying with Dr. Charlotte Sharfin and Dr. Norm Goody. My only personal knowledge about medical aid in dying was my friend who happened to be Kaiser, and I know that Kaiser does cover the cost of the medication. Dr. Sharfin, do you know anything about others? Do insurers cover the medication for medical aid in dying? There are some insurers. Medicare is one that will not cover it. There's no federal law restricting medical aid in dying, but in 97, there was a federal funding restriction that Congress passed. So it won't be covered by Medicare. Our state for Medicaid will cover it. A lot of people do have to pay out of pocket. Luckily, the medication is not as expensive as it used to be. I've heard it ranging from two to $400 is about the cost that's been quoted to me. Okay. Well, I just want to share that when my friend used it, it was a very peaceful leave-taking, and it was just almost six months after he had received the diagnosis. He made the decision to use the medication, partly because of pain, but also um, violent dreams. And, you know, he wasn't himself. His sense of humor wasn't the same. He was Actually, I could see the week before he decided that it was probably close because his color had changed. I mean, the disease was taking its toll. He had prostate cancer, and it was quite, quite advanced. But the leave-taking was wonderfully peaceful. His wife said it was just what they wanted it to be, where he took all the medication, he laid down on the couch, he went to sleep. The hospice nurse was there and told Kathy, you know, he's sleeping and now he's in a coma, but he can still hear you. And it was not a violent or thrashing or particularly bad thing, which some people's death can be. And they did it on their own time and on their own schedule. So it worked out well. And he was a lovely guy. And it was good for people like me who are his friends to know that he left the way he wanted to. Now, I mentioned that in this case, the hospice nurse came and was able to guide Kathy as to what was happening. But I know, Dr. Sharfin, you are using a program or have developed a program called Death Doulas. What is that? So first of all, I didn't develop that program. I do teach one of them, but Death Doulas or End of Life Doulas, that's a term that was coined actually back in 2003. It's actually nationwide. Hospices are using death doulas within hospice. We have that actually here in North Hawaii hospice. Death doulas or end-of-life doulas can also be outside of the system. It's an incredible program. It's an incredible thing. It's basically a non-medical, holistic approach to supporting the dying and their family, no matter where they are along that trajectory. Well, isn't that sort of what hospice 
does? I mean, you said that you're using that program inside North Hawaii Hospice. Do all hospices use this, or is this a new concept? It's a new concept still to a lot of hospices, even though the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization have a council inside their national program to educate people about what end-of-life doulas are. So, yeah. The hospice organization is really as much about the medical care. So it involves a physician who oversees the medications and managing symptoms, the hospice nurses who provide the actual medications, then they have nurses' aides who do things like uh, bathing and wound and dressing changes, and then social worker who may help with emotional end-of-life and grief counseling, a spiritual care person who helps address those issues. But they don't necessarily have someone that's specifically there to be present during the actively dying patients. And so doulas are there for that, but they're actually there for a lot more. And that's where I think there's a lot of education that can be done around end-of-life doulas. If you ask most hospice nurses, anybody that works in hospice, they don't have enough time anymore. And that's the medical system in general. It's sad that they can't spend the kind of quality time they want with their patient. That's where a doula can come in because they're not there to do the medical part. Right? They're there to hold the space, whatever that means for that patient and that family. It can be practical stuff like running to the grocery store or just doing some things around the house. A lot of it can be very much emotional support, spiritual support, helping them work on their end-of-life documents. There's a lot of things that end-of-life doulas really get involved in on a much bigger scale than, say, a patient volunteer. Well, you know, I look at babies, infants, when they're born, they're almost all the same. You know what you have to do to take care of them and get them to be functioning children. But my parents, each one of them had a very different kind of death process. And everybody I know, death is different. You don't know what the disease is going to be or whatever. So it sounds like the death doula is a step towards providing additional support at a time when I think people really need it. Because how many of us really know what's going on at the time of death? Your doctors, you've seen that, but the average layperson like me has not. And that's what's different about the program I help co-facilitate is. That's why I come into it is I do expose non-medical people to what the process does look like so that they can educate the family. It's a lot about education. That's what a lot of doulas are doing is just trying to say, okay, I'm recognizing these stages of death. It may be time for you guys to come into the room um, or just helping them along the process because hospice does a great job, but you can imagine when you're in that state, you're getting thrown so much information. So a doula is there just kind of being that calm, calm person in the storm to say, remember, these are the stages, remember these things, and empowering the family and that patient, really. Well, it sounds like they're there more. Yeah, they can be. You know, it's just different how every doula approaches things. One of the issues is that we've sanitized death in our society. People die either in a hospital, alone, or away, hidden away, or away from family, or maybe with just one family member there. And I think we're moving back towards a more holistic approach to death being a natural process and part of life. And people are being exposed to that more. And you know, through programs like the Death Doula Program and what hospice does are educating people on what to expect. Because we're all, we're all scared of the unknown. Yeah. So if you don't know what to expect and you don't have any control over it, It's natural for people to fear that, but by educating them about what to expect, how to manage it, how to handle things, it's going a long way to allow people to sort of take back some control of the process. And that's what I actually personally like about the medical aid and dying law. If you look at Oregon, they have the lowest rate of in-hospital deaths. 
Most people will tell you they want to die in their home, but 70 to 80% of people in our country die in a hospital or a long-term care facility. So Oregon, once they instituted that law, they saw the rates of deaths in hospitals drop. They saw palliative care and hospice referrals increased. They saw more engagement from physicians no matter what. Doctors had to talk to their patients. They were forced to. That's why I love this law is because it gives us an opportunity to communicate and ask questions and figure out what those fears are. And that was my experience as a hospice doctor, too. A lot of family members said, we don't want mom, dad, whoever it was, dying at home because we don't know what to do. It scares us. And that gave us the opportunity to then educate them about what was going on and reassure them that they could handle the process. How do you address the issue that I've heard that some people say, well, if a doctor participates in medical aid and dying, that's somehow violating their oath, the Hippocratic Oath, which actually I understand you doctors don't actually take anymore, even if you ever did. But how do you address that? Well, it's important to understand that this law, which is actually called Our Care, Our Choice Law in Hawaii, very specifically states that ending your life through aid and dying is not considered suicide. In fact, it explicitly states that suicide not be placed on the death certificate because that has ramifications for insurance coverage and other issues as well. But the patient who's participating in this must be able to administer the medications themselves. So you're not actually ending somebody's life. You might be giving them tools that they use, but you're not killing them. They're not really even committing suicide because this is something that takes a great deal of planning and they've given a lot of thought to. It's not a spontaneous action. As we alluded to, it's a minimum of 22-day waiting period in Hawaii. Just to start. Just to start. It's been accepted and pretty clearly that this is not suicide because these people all have a terminal illness who are inevitably dying in the very near future anyway. You're simply assisting them through that process. But I would point out, no physician has to follow this law. You can opt out. You don't have to write a prescription for your patient if they ask. What I ask for physicians to do, though, is to really remain neutral and use it as an opportunity. Use it as an opportunity to talk to your patient and then get them referred to someone that you feel comfortable with instead of just, oh my gosh, I can't take part in this law. I think there's a lot of education for physicians right now is just how to talk to their patients about the law. I mean, Um, certainly part of the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm, but from my perspective and in my opinion, you're not harming them by helping them through this process. You're actually helping them. And it sounds like you're helping people who wish to to have a peaceful leave-taking. As you pointed out, so many of the patients who get the medication don't actually take it. They just know they have it. Yeah, I will tell you my experience, my one experience thus far working with a patient that's gone through the process has been, it's been a beautiful experience for me. I feel as if I have been a lovely help to him and he has taught me so much. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm grateful for this law. After this law became in existence and after my friend took advantage of it. Now, I don't have a terminal disease that I know of, but I did ask my own physician, if I ever had a terminal disease, would you be able to assist me with this? Because I wouldn't want to get to where I had a disease and then suddenly had to change doctors in the middle of the stream. I mean, I establish a relationship with my doctor and I want him to be there for me. Should that occur and knock on wood, it won't. We're getting toward the end of our time together and I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to add things that I may not have thought to ask. Dr. Goody, why don't you go first? To reiterate what you said earlier, for patients who have pursued end-of-life medications, the typical experience has been that they fall asleep within 5 to 30 minutes. 
and then a peaceful death occurs within another few minutes to sometimes a few hours, but they're asleep and comfortable, and it has been a very peaceful experience. So for most of the patients, I think, to know that that's the outcome that they're going to experience has been very reassuring to them. Dr. Sharfin. I think what I would just add, and you, and you touched on this, but I also think from a religious standpoint, I like to point out that 70% of non-Christians believe in this law. Almost 60% of Christians do. Almost 60% of physicians, if you ask, they believe in this law. So there's a lot of understanding we still need. Um, There's something called engaged neutrality that I think we all need to follow as health care providers, which means engaging, not making judgments, and just being open to what our patients are asking of us. And I think it is also important to point out that the patient has to be cognizant and aware and have the ability to take the medication themselves. So this is not applicable to someone with end-stage dementia. It's not applicable to someone who's in a vegetative state. It's not euthanasia. This is someone who's actively choosing to have aid in dying. You brought up something that I guess I should have asked. The biggest question I've gotten asked by people who knew I was going to be talking with you was, I am very concerned that maybe I will develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Is there a way that a patient can in advance say, if I develop this, this is what I want to have happen? Or no? Absolutely not. No. At this time, the answer is no. You can't put it in an advanced directive. It's not something that this is something that a conscious person who is mentally competent has to go through. So that's why, you know, under the law, dementia definitely does not qualify. Dr. Charlotte Sharfin, Dr. Norm Goody, thank you so much for helping us understand this new law. If people want to learn more, where can they best read about this? There's a couple different places. Compassionandchoices.org is one site that has a lot of information. Compassionandchoices.org. The Department of Health Department actually of has Health. a lot of information. And Kakua Mao, which is a statewide organization that assists with senior care and end-of-life care. Great. Thank you so much. Aloha. 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 And to our audience, thank you so much for being with us. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we talked with Dr. Norm Goody and Dr. Charlotte Scherfen about the new medical aid in dying law. Remember that you may hear this online anytime, kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. Until next time and another Island Conversation, please. Let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.